Well, I'll question you this morning. How much do you know about electricity? How well do you know how electricity works? You go to the store to buy a 12-watt light bulb or a 9-volt battery or a 6-amp shop vac. Do you know what any of these things mean? Do you know how electricity works? If you would humor me for a moment, you'll see where I'm going with this. I want to explain to you how electricity works using the analogy of water. Turn on your garden hose, water comes out. How does that happen? It takes three things, water, hose, and pressure. And that's pretty much how electricity works. You need a metal conductor or wire. That's like the uh, hose. You need electrons, which seem to move through it, flow through it. That's like the water. And then you need pressure to push it. That's voltage, pushing electrons through. And with water, you all know that high pressure will shoot water out faster and farther, right? Well, same with electricity. So if you want to move electricity or electrons off over like 100 miles, you need really, really high pressure, high voltage, which is why you see across states those really tall electric wires, those high voltage wires, sometimes up to 900,000 volts. Now, where do amps come in? Amps is a measure of current. That's like the diameter of a hose. So you want more power to flow, just get a bigger hose. You have a 5,000-gallon water tank. You put up a garden hose to it. Only so much water can make it out. But you switch it to a fire hose, you get a lot more water out, more power, more current is flowing. That's like amps. Then you put volts and amps together, and you get watts. And that's, that's the measure of the actual amount of water coming out of the hose. That's how much power is being delivered, and that power is used to do things. Just like the flow of water can spin a little turbine and do work, so a flow of electrons can spin a motor and power that hairdryer of yours. This is a very simplified explanation, but you think about it, hopefully it helps you just better grasp this invisible, abstract concept known as electricity. What is it? I mean, I could tell you that technically voltage is the measure of difference in electric potential between two points, but water pressure is a lot more easy to understand. And that's the real point I'm trying to make here, giving this analogy just to show you the power of analogies. Illustrations are very helpful. How do you explain a difficult concept to someone who has no knowledge, no familiarity with, with the field? Well, you know that a picture is worth a thousand words, and in the same way, a word picture is worth a thousand words. It's all about using the known and the familiar to shed light on the unknown and unfamiliar. And especially when it comes to abstract concepts, all of us benefit from the light that comes from analogies or comparisons. That's very much the case when it comes to grasping spiritual truth, which, like electricity, it's invisible, it's abstract. I mean, just think, who is God? How are we to know God, this invisible, spiritual, creator being? How are we supposed to know this being? Well, we're told in some ways he's like a rock. In some ways, he's like light. In some ways, he's like a lion. In some ways, he's like a father, and so on. And we rely on such comparisons to make the unknown known to us. And thankfully, the Bible is filled with such illustrations, and God was sure to communicate himself to us in a way us creatures could understand. We see that in Jesus himself. And part of the reason Jesus came was to reveal the Father. He came to make God and the way of God more fully known. God knew that through an incarnate divine human mediator, God himself could be more fully known to man. At the same time, Jesus was also a teacher. He aimed to explain the way of God through word. And when it comes to that, Jesus was the prince of preachers. He was a master of verbal communication, and he did so frequently using word pictures. He expertly employed metaphors and analogies, comparisons, just take these big truths and make them simple and memorable. We've already seen so much of that in Matthew's gospel, which we're studying. We saw that most of all, so far, in the great Sermon on the Mount, which Matthew records for us in all of its glory. Matthew, in his gospel, makes a point to record these five major sermons or discourses of Jesus, putting them on full display. We started with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We've seen the second message, Matthew 10, the, the demands of discipleship. And today, we, we finally arrive at the third of these five grand messages. And this is the most colorful of them all, 
It would be the parables of Matthew 13. So go ahead, take your Bibles, open them now to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. You're you're probably aware that Jesus gave many parables. You find them scattered throughout the Gospels. But Matthew 13 is special because it is the largest collection of parables in the New Testament on the kingdom of God. They all come from the same message. Parables are essentially their own genre of scripture. They're a blend of teaching and storytelling used to communicate profound kingdom truth. And they just have a way of implanting, burrowing in our memories. And the parables of Matthew 13 are no exception. We, we gravitate to the known and the familiar. And that's why parables are so powerful. It's not just like Jesus teaching with illustrations peppered in. He does that all the time. No, the parables, like the whole thing is an illustration. This is just storytelling with spiritual truth embedded in it. You ever listen to a sermon and then you, you forget the sermon entirely, but you remember a, an illustration or a story, and that's, that's kind of all you remember. I'm guilty too. That happens at times, but with parables, if you can just remember the parable, you can remember the point because it's, it is embedded in the story itself, and that's why they're so special and powerful. And for our time this morning, to get started in this new chapter, we're not going to get into any specific parable. We'll do that next week, the weeks to come. But today, I just want to help, get us, help us get to know the parables overall, and mostly we'll spend our time going through verses 10 through 17, where Jesus explains why he teaches in parables, which is quite a big deal. For now, though, let's, let's get started. Let's set the scene and just dip our toes into this chapter, looking at verses 1 and 2 to begin. This is the background, the scene of, of Jesus teaching in parables. So let's get started. Matthew 13, 1 and 2. It says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. The setting of these parables is not to be missed. You'll notice right away it says that day, and we wonder, like, what day? What day are we talking about? Well, it's the same day we found in Matthew chapter 12, this this day of opposition. From a grain field to a synagogue that the religious leaders were, were going after Jesus, opposing him. This reached a climax, we found, where Jesus, after he heals a demon-possessed, blind, mute man, they accuse him of working and doing that by the power of the devil. Despite his countless signs and wonders, the leaders have fully rejected Jesus. The people, they're, they're not that far behind. They don't have pitchforks yet, but despite seeing all the same signs and wonders, it's not like they're following Jesus. It's not like they're actually believing he is the Messiah Like, he's a teacher, he's a healer, but he's not Lord and Savior. And this is why, we found last week as well, Jesus confronts this generation, calling it an evil and adulterous generation. And this is where, right here is where we start seeing Jesus turn away from the crowds a little bit more, a little bit more, which actually leads into why he's going to teach in parables. We'll see that in a little bit. But after all this confrontation with the Pharisees, on this same day, it appears that Jesus retires into a home. We found that last week. Most likely, this is the home of Peter and Capernaum. They probably just wanted rest, maybe a meal, but there was no time for rest or a meal that afternoon. I guess they left the door open, or they didn't close it fast enough because just a swarm of people entered this house. It's packed. His family tries to reach him. That was the last passage in chapter 12. But all these people, they're they're not following Jesus. They still want to see him and hear him. And so that's where we finish, verse, chapter 13, verse 1. So now we're still on the same day. It says, that day, Jesus went out of the house. Again, too crowded, too much is going on. We just get the impression he wants to just be alone with his 12. Maybe finally get that meal or get some rest. So we find Jesus just moving to the beach, Capernaum right on the shore, just going, sitting by the sea, the Sea of Galilee. But doesn't work. As soon as they escape the house and make it to the beach, just like the crowds just follow him. Literally, it says uh, many crowds, so mobs of people converge. They find Jesus. Verse 2, large crowds gathered to him. Just the, the mob has shown up. They want to see the traveling roadshow known as Jesus. And there's such a mass of people that either to avoid being trampled or to just to better address the people, he gets in a boat. Verse 2, Jesus got in a boat, sat down, The crowd remained on the shore. Not the first time he's 
address the crowds from a boat. We don't know for sure, but just south of Capernaum, where, where it has been found on the Sea of Galilee today, there's this little horseshoe-shaped inlet that has now been called the Cove of the Parables, where this is said to have taken place traditionally, and it would have been a very fitting natural amphitheater. We don't know for sure, but either way, he gets into a boat, sits down, which is the position of a rabbi about to teach, and verse 3, it says, he spoke many things to them in parables. And then off it goes, parable after parable after parable, just a, a capture of what Jesus taught that day. Now, we're not going to get into verse 3. We'll save that first, the most famous parable of the sower or soils for, for next time. But this is a good place for us to ask two key questions. Help us just grasp the parables overall to see their power and their purpose. And so let, let's just do this. Keep it simple, but just want to ask two questions to help us grasp the power and purpose of the parables. And we'll be well acquainted. Two questions to help us see the power and purpose of the parables. And it'll be simple, but, but poignant. First, what is a parable? What is it? We should make sure we understand this, this type of teaching, taking a deeper look at parables, that the Greek word for parable was used to describe a whole host of figurative language. But you know, with Jesus, it's something quite specific. It's a specific form of teaching that we're talking about here. Jesus was a master of all sorts of figurative language. Parables, that they're in their own special category. Like I said, really their own genre of scripture. They're not allegories. Because not every single detail has special meaning. They're not fables because parables are true to life. They're, they're true. They could happen. They're not metaphors. I guess you could say they're like extended similes. Like the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. And then what follows is really just a true to life story used to communicate deep spiritual truth. And that's a pretty good basic working definition of the parables. It's true to life short stories used to communicate deep spiritual truth. In all, Jesus gave around 35 parables recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not John. He leaves them out, but Matthew, Mark, Luke give us all the parables. Parables are an extremely effective form of communication. Just being illustrative, they immediately spark imagination and, and arrest the attention of the hearers. Because who doesn't love story time? But parables are also quite strategic William Barclay put it best when he said this, just by, by drawing these analogies, Jesus gets people, quote, to pass a judgment on things on which they were well acquainted, and then to compel them to transfer that judgment to something to whose significance they had been blind, end quote. So what that means is this, like Jesus can tell a story about some wicked vine growers who beat up the owner's servants, who killed the owner's son, and who wanted to, to capture the vineyard for themselves. And so he questions, what will the owner do at that point? And the hearers pass judgment. They're the ones who say, well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That's when Jesus can drop the bombshell that, hey, actually, the wicked vine growers are you, the, the religious leaders. He gets them to pass judgment on themselves. And when God brings them to a wretched end, if they don't repent, it will be just. See, many of the parables are like Trojan horses getting you to internalize truth and just convict yourself from within. It's why it's such a powerful form of communication. Now, more important to observe, though, is that all of the parables seem to have something to say about one grand subject. It's one subject that you find in all the parables, and that would be the kingdom the kingdom of God. This is Christ's vehicle for revealing mysteries of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to God's, uh, the exercise of God's rule over his creation. Jesus came to announce and advance that kingdom. And as such, he has much to reveal about the near and distant future of that kingdom. And he does that a lot in the parables. And so we're going to find parables on the nature of the kingdom growth of the kingdom, entrance into the kingdom, the rejection of the king of the kingdom, and then the anticipation and alertness for the king's return, and so on. You would do well to familiarize yourself with the breadth of Christ's kingdom teaching in the parables, not, we're going to do, not what we're, we are going to do today, 
And now we want to narrow in on the parables of Matthew 13, this, this most famous collection of, of the hits, the great hits. This is the greatest salvo of parables, all coming from the same message. Matthew 13, we get seven classic parables. Parable of the sower, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the yeast, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and the dragnet. Each has its own unique, important message about the kingdom of heaven. We'll see those as we go. But hopefully this already just gives you a little better understanding, helps you get better acquainted with the special category of teaching of the Lord. And after this point in Matthew 13, he, a large portion of his communication to the crowds is in parables. It's a powerful, effective tool of communication. Now in verses 3 through 9, like I said, he gives the first, the parable of the sower or soils. We'll cover that next time. But then in verse 10, Matthew interrupts the flow of narrative, telling us something that took place later in the day, but inserting a little section here where Jesus explains the purpose of the parables. Why, why is he doing this? And what he says might shock you. This is where we're going to spend most of our time, this second question, to discover the purpose of the parables. Just, hey, simple enough. Why did Jesus teach in parables? Why did Jesus teach in parables? So now let's jump down to verse 10. You'll see how this interrupts the flow, but explains things. Verse 10. It says, And the disciples came to him, and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? So this obviously took place later in the day because he gave the, the whole message of parables all at once. This is confirmed in Mark chapter 4, verse 10, where it says, as soon as the disciples got Jesus alone later that day, they, they had some questions. Their first question actually was, what did you mean by the parable of the sower? It's not like they were understanding everything either. And so that's why he gives an explanation, the explanation of which comes in verses 18 through 23. So we'll get to that too. So they want to know what the parables mean, but Matthew, he hones in on, on the second question they ask, namely like, well, why are you even teaching in parables? If we barely understand this stuff, they aren't getting anything. So why are you teaching in a way that people can't understand what you mean? And keep in mind, Jesus, he does not give the crowds any interpretation. He'll give the disciples a private interpretation. Tell me, here's actually what this was talking about. The crowds never get the interpretation. Listen to Mark 4, 33 and 34. That's at the end of Mark's record of this same event. He says, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, the crowds, as far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And so the, the, the disciples, now they're questioning his methodology, like, why, why are you doing this? It, it's confusing to us. They're beyond lost. Why would you do that? And in response, Jesus gives two answers. So there are two answers to this question as to why he taught in parables. First answer, Jesus taught in parables to reveal truth to those who believe in him. So there is a positive side. It is meant to reveal truth to those who believe in him. Verse 11, Jesus Answer them. He says at first, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so here Jesus explicitly says parables have a revealing function. These are not simple folk tales. They have embedded within them deep spiritual truths revealing mysteries of the kingdom. Now what, what does that mean? Mystery of the kingdom. Mystery is a technical term in the New Testament. It speaks of truth previously unrevealed, something that had not been revealed in the Old Testament and must come by way of revelation. You're not going to stumble upon these truths reading the Old Testament. It must be revealed. And that is what Jesus is doing with the parables. God's revelation is progressive. He progressively reveals more and more. And there's a lot more. The kingdom parables are going to tell you a lot more about God's plans for this world. And so he's revealing to his disciples serious truth about God's kingdom. And it's a good thing. Jesus is finally spilling the beans on kingdom plans because so far this kingdom was not coming when or how any Jew expected. Even the disciples were starting to get confused. You know, the basic concept of the kingdom is just the rule of God over his creation. And we know that God, supremely, he's always on the throne. He's always in control of all things. 
But functionally on this earth, we also know at the fall, Satan usurped God's rule. And man has likewise joined in that rebellion. And so we would say God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray for it. There's rebellion. There's sin. But ever since the fall, God has put into place, into motion, his plan to restore his rightful rule, the exercise of that rule over all things. Part of that plan in the Old Testament was to use one special people, a nation, Israel, to be a mediator to the rest of the nations, a kingdom of priests, whereby God's rule would be mediated to all the nations. Israel has inherited many great promises along those lines. And by Christ's day, the Jews had high hopes for this kingdom. At the moment, they were still laid low under Roman rule, but they believed the Messiah would come. He would usher in this kingdom, just the rule and reign of God over the nations, and Israel would have the best seat in the house. They would be on top. And accordingly, the, the Jews went on to really emphasize the physical dimension of the kingdom to the great neglect of the spiritual dimension of the kingdom. They're looking just for a messianic king, really a political ruler who would come, free them from the yoke of the Romans, set up an earthly kingdom, and just rule forever with Israel on top. Now, the thing is that that will happen. Jesus is that king. He will reign. But they failed to understand that this Messiah had to first be the suffering servant. Jesus, as Savior, first had to come suffer and die for his people. Otherwise, his kingdom would be empty because we all have participated in this rebellion. No one deserves to enter this kingdom. Jesus had to suffer and die to defeat sin and Satan on the cross, thereby enabling us to come under God's rule, not his judgment. And we take the cross way for granted, but just know that none of the Jews were expecting this to play out when the Messiah came. It's why it was a stumbling block to them. The Messiah had to die and be rejected. I mean, just think, Jesus, he's coming as the king of God's kingdom, and in him, God's rule is being revealed. That God is going to mediate his rule over all creation now through this, this one, this second Adam, this true Israelite, Jesus. Only at the time, they saw Jesus as this, this lowly carpenter from the podunk town of Nazareth. And just think about that, that claim. It does take faith to believe. This guy, he's, he's nobody special. He's not a ruler. He's not royal blood. He's not privileged. He's not even rich. But this guy is supposed to be the Messiah and the Son of God. At the time, you have to realize how crazy that sounds. But the only thing is that crazy people don't open blind eyes. And they don't heal lepers. They don't raise the dead. They don't speak the truth with power and conviction. And they're not sinless. So the words, despite all on the surface appearance that this was not what they were expecting, still, the words and the works of Jesus testified and their message was undeniable. That this, he really is the king of the kingdom. He is their Messiah. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is Lord. He is king of this kingdom. This is a lot to, to think about. Just to boil it down, though, we're talking about the mystery of the kingdom of God. And at its core, the mystery is this, that God's rule comes in this lowly carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. That he is the king of the kingdom, and already you can tell this kingdom is not going to come in the way you expect. Certainly not the way they expected. I mean, forget your swords, forget the Romans. This is way bigger than that. And for a lot of the Jews at the time, this was a big pill to swallow. It required something called faith. And for many, they choked, they spit it out, they couldn't handle it. They rejected him. Even though the conclusion was so unavoidable, they rejected Jesus. They turned on him, which... In an ironic twist, that itself was one of the mysteries of the kingdom, that Jesus, the Messiah, would be rejected by his own people. That was actually part of the plan. As for the disciples, though, they do believe in him. They do believe he's the Messiah, but they're confused as well. They have their own expectations, and things are not going how they thought it should go. They, they need to be let in on what's really going on. What are God's plans for this world, this age? These parables are meant to reveal such truths to those with eyes to see. And so we're going to find in the weeks to come a lot of grand truth, a treasure trove 
of truth on God's plans for his rule over this world in this age and the age to come. He, he, he wants his disciples, those who do believe in him, to be in the know. And parables, maybe beyond any other form of, of teaching, tell us and bring us in the know. This is what's going to happen. So that's the first answer to the question. Question here, why did Jesus teach in parables? The first answer is to reveal truth to those who believe in him. So we're, we're going to love it. We're going to study it and enjoy it in time to come. But there is a second answer, though. And really, the second answer dominates these verses as he's giving them perspective. And we want to get that as well. And the second answer is, it's much more shocking. Why did he teach in parables? The first answer, to reveal truth to those who believe in him. The second answer, to conceal truth from those who reject him. Finish verse 11. Jesus answered to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. Jesus is saying that his parables are like stained glass windows. From the inside, they look glorious and brilliant. As we look around us, from the outside, they look dull and lifeless. Or embroidery, on the front side, it's a beautiful picture. On the back side, it's like a tangled mess of knots. And that's the dual function of parables. They're able to both reveal and conceal truth at the same time. To true disciples and those with faith, the parables reveal the mysteries of God. But to false disciples or enemies of Christ, they conceal the greater truths of God. Now, surely you're going to ask, and you should, why would Jesus want to conceal truth from people? Isn't that why he came to make the truth known? Now he's covering it up. That doesn't make sense. That itself has two answers, you know, like two subpoints: one divine answer, one human answer. One answer from divine perspective, one answer from a human perspective. Why would Jesus want to conceal truth? And so we'll start with the divine perspective as it comes first in verse 11. To them, it's just not granted. You can't escape God's choice here. There's really no way to soften the effect of verse 11. It's up to God's calling, his choosing, his revealing. How do you learn the mysteries of the kingdom? By study, by hard work, by, by searching for it? No, it's just, it's a mystery. It has to be revealed. Who's revealing? God. And it's up to him. Like he grants it to some and not to others. It's, it's just up to him. We are passive in this. We're just receiving. But it is God's prerogative to grant to some the knowledge of the kingdom and not to others. That's just his business. Did not Jesus say to the 12 in Matthew 15, 16, or I'm sorry, John 15, 16, he told them, like, you did not choose me. You may have thought you did, but you did not choose me. I chose you. Why does God choose one person and not another? Why would he open that person's eyes and not that person's eyes? We have no human answer. It's just the mystery of his hidden will. But how much can you argue with clear scripture like Romans 9, 18? which says God will have mercy on whom he wills, and he will harden whom he wills. Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Not our will, his will. At the end of the day, you can't really escape a sovereign God doing sovereign things and being sovereign. And Jesus teaches in parables partly to conceal truth and he conceals truth partly because to some it's not been granted for them to know. That's what he says in verse 11, and he just doubles down on it in verse 12. Verse 12, he says, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. What does this mean? I'm just thinking, in all fields of learning, just a basic knowledge is required to gain an advanced knowledge. This is why in college, you know, upper division classes come after lower division classes. You can't just skip. You've got to go the right path. You want to study Mozart and music theory, you're going to have to learn to read music first. And it's the same with the knowledge of God, except we're not just call it, talking about knowledge, but appropriation. So here's what Jesus is saying. You have no chance of learning the deep things of God if you don't even get past this first point. Jesus is Lord and Savior. If you don't even believe and know that, you're not going to get anywhere else. If you don't come to him by faith, recognizing who he is, 
It's not that you haven't made it to first base. You're not even playing the right game. Don't expect to make any real meaningful progress in the truth, in the faith, until you believe in him. Then when you do, he will give you the spirit to illumine you and the way of God will open before you. As has been said in church history, do not seek to understand that you might believe, rather seek to believe that you might understand. Faith in Christ as Lord is the gateway to spiritual truth. This is precisely what Paul says in Colossians 3, or Colossians 2, verse 3, when he says, in Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you don't even go through Christ, you'll never discover the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're found in him. And for those who do not have this faith, they don't even have the basic confession. Jesus is Lord. Well, even what they have will be taken away. Some give the appearance of faith as if they're enlightened, as if they're true disciples, as if they know, but they stop short of, of real faith. And as a result, that the light that they think they have, even that's going to be taken away from them eventually. And that is the connection with parables, because parables have a way of leaving people in the dark. Without interpretation or illumination, parables turn into riddles that can't be solved. You, you can only guess at what they mean, but you'll never know for sure. So, Functionally, parables enable Jesus to preach truth while not casting pearls before swine. That the goats, they can be entertained by his stories, but only his sheep are going to get fed. Now, that's not the end of the matter, though, because Jesus goes on to balance his divine explanation as to why he's concealing truth in parables with a human explanation. Scripture always puts these side by side, both true. God's sovereign, we're responsible same with these, this explanation. Jesus teaches in parables. Why? Well, second reason, partly to conceal truth. From the divine perspective, that's because God has granted special grace to some and not others. It's just a fact. But now from the human perspective, it's because those people chose to deny the light that had been given. They, they chose not to believe. It's their fault. Verse 13. He says, therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see on verse 13, he's really giving another answer to the question of verse 10. Why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 13, well, I speak to them in parables because, and here in verse 13, he does not point to anything that has to do with God's choice, but rather their responsibility. They don't see, they don't hear. While seeing, they don't see. While hearing, they don't hear. So in other words, it's, it's their fault. They've been given plenty of light already. I mean, just think, they had the Messiah in front of them in the flesh. They had witnessed countless miracles. They had heard the literal word of God preached with power. But all that wasn't enough. They still didn't believe. They don't see, they don't hear him as the Messiah. They have, they have rejected the light of the world. And so what he's saying is, well, uh, the light's going to be taken away from them now. They're going to be left to the darkness. They chose. They don't get any more light. And it's their fault. And so you can see then how before the unbelieving parables, they're actually a form of judgment. They're an indictment on hardened hearts. This is just like Romans 1. All people have been given the knowledge of God imprinted in their hearts. In addition to that, you've got special or general revelation. You get the knowledge of God you see in creation. These Jews had on top of that the privilege special revelation. They were staring at the incarnate word of God, but they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They hardened their own hearts. Therefore, God hardened their hearts. And he did so simply by, by letting them be, by handing them over to the darkness they chose. This is not just a Jewish phenomenon, this hardness of heart. You find it still today, the world over, but what we learn here is that the Jews of Christ's day, they were merely repeating the story of, of ancient Israel. Like, just think, how many times throughout the Old Testament did God earnestly warn his people to repent, to believe, to, to mend their ways, to rend their hearts, to heed his word, to turn to him? For centuries, he sent them prophets, priests, and kings, but they never listened. They were stiff-necked rebellious. It says they hardened their own hearts, so God just handed them over to their sin. 
and they suffered the just judgment that followed. This is actually a huge theme in many of the prophets, especially Isaiah. And it is not an accident that right after this, Jesus quotes a big passage from Isaiah to just prove his point. So look at verse 14. Still answering the question, he says, In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their eyes, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. He's quoting a passage here from Isaiah chapter 6, a famous passage. Isaiah sees the throne room of God, the holy, holy, holy presence of God. Thereafter, he's commissioned to be God's prophet, his messenger to the people. The thing is, though, God, at this point, he has already pronounced judgment on Israel for their great sins of apostasy and unbelief and uh, immorality. They're going to be judged. They're going to be exiled. So, why is God sending Isaiah to preach to them if, if they've already been sentenced? What good is it for, for Isaiah to show them their sin if they're not going to repent? They've, they've been sentenced. The answer is indictment. And in this case, Isaiah's preaching takes on a double meaning. For as he calls them to repent and return to the Lord, they confirm their unbelief by rejecting him. They seal their own judgment. And it's in this context we find Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10, which Jesus references here, that Israel is so hardened in their sin that they will not repent. God speaks to them through Isaiah anyway, only serves the function of confirming them in their unbelief and sealing them in their judgment. But they can't say they weren't warned. And now Jesus references this passage because his parables are doing the same thing. His parables have the the same effect as that preaching of Isaiah before the Jews before him. Now, back in Isaiah 6, Isaiah questions the Lord, how long? How long must he give this message? Because the people aren't going to listen. And the Lord effectively tells him, until these people are humbled and laid low and turned to him. And they were going to be judged. They were going to be exiled. But as we learned last week, the exile did not actually accomplish that true humbling. After Israel's exile, they, they came back. They were reformed. They were religious, but they weren't reborn. The Jews, by the time of Christ, they had morally shaped up. They weren't worshiping Baal anymore, but they were self-righteous. They were still lost. I mean, they they crucified their own Messiah. And so their humbling will continue. Israel's chastening began in the days of Isaiah, and they're continuing in the days of Christ. It is being fulfilled, he says, or filled up until the day they finally look on him whom they've pierced. For now, though, Israel, at the time of Jesus, was wicked and unbelieving. It's Christ's own conclusion. Remember, end of chapter 12, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. He says they're worse than Nineveh and Sodom and Gomorrah in their self-righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees have already gone way off the deep end in their hard-heartedness, claiming Jesus is devil-possessed, but the rest of Israel is not much better. Outwardly, they may appear righteous, but they are far from God. So you put it all together that, uh, now. And Jesus, he taught in parables because there was truth to be had. If you had faith in Jesus, you will receive mysteries of the kingdom. You will draw closer to God. We find that in his true disciples. At first, the 12, they did not understand these things. But the difference is after they went to Jesus for an explanation. They sought him out in faith, and they submitted to the truth. The crowds, on the other hand, don't seem to care. They're entertained by the stories, but they they don't care about the deeper meaning of the kingdom because they they aren't really seeking God or his truth. And therefore, for them, Christ's parables, just like Isaiah's preaching, only confirm them in their unbelief. It just seals their judgment. The people were responsible before God for their own hardness of heart. But through these parables, their hardened state was confirmed. This does not mean those outside were being denied the possibility of belief. Jesus says all the time, hey, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's there. It's just right there. If only you would approach him in faith, you will receive the mysteries of the kingdom. But if you don't, you will be kept outside 
in the dark. And like that distinction is still true today. What have we done this morning? We've introduced Matthew 13. We've surveyed the power and the purpose of the parables. You've learned Jesus taught in parables to reveal truth to those who believe in him, to conceal truth from those who reject him. Okay, great. You've learned something. But you need to understand now and in the weeks to come, anytime you you study the parables, it's never just an intellectual exercise. And the irony is, by the Lord's design, it's not a flaw, it's a function of the parables. That Every time they're retold, they do what they're designed to do. They divide. They separate people. By, by design, the parables separate the seeing from the blind, the, the, the serious from the curious, those who are seeking the one true God from those who are just looking for a little religion, a religious sideshow. The parables draw a person's faith or lack thereof right to the surface and make it known. They continue to reveal and conceal God's word. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's impossible for non-Christians to intellectually understand the parables. We'll go through them. We'll explain the kingdom truth they reveal. But same thing, if you don't regard Jesus as your Lord, what's it good for? You can never appropriate their truth. You're not going to accept the truth. You won't live it out in your life. It will make you, like these crowds, at best, mere hearers of the word who delude themselves, not doers of the word. And so this is a caution. This is a call for all of us, self-examination, because, listen, spiritual blindness is alive and well. Over the years, I've known people, they testify that they were in church for decades. But yet yet when you ask them the gospel, clueless, just deer in headlights, they they don't have no knowledge. And for some people, it's a reflection on the weak churches they've been in. For other people, it's a reflection on their own spiritual blindness. It's a veil remains over their eyes. Too many people are comfortable coming to church, being around Christ. Christ is not in them. They are not in Christ. He's not their Lord. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 is, is this very point and quite instructive here. You know, we know the Jews of, of his day persisted in their blindness He went to them, he preached Christ crucified, and most of the Jews still did not believe. All the signs were there, the testimony was there, the fulfilled prophecy was there. They didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? Well, he explains here in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Why didn't they believe? Their minds were hardened. And now look at verse 15, chapter 3. Verse 14, their minds were hardened. Verse 15, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the Old Covenant a veil lies over their heart. Just, they, they can read it. The Old Covenant, the law, they don't get it. The Jews in the Old Testament, they didn't grasp the significance of the Old Covenant. Now here comes along the New Covenant. They're not going to get that either. The, the veil is there. It's not removed. They don't get it because their hearts are veiled. They don't believe in Jesus because their hearts are veiled. And Paul actually adds an additional spiritual dimension as to why their hearts are veiled, why they don't understand Chapter 4, keeping this veiled analogy, its own word picture. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Saying the people don't see and they can't see. They've chosen blindness, and they are externally blinded by the evil one. And we're going to learn next week the parable of the sower. These people, and so many, are just like the seed sown on the road, which speaks of the evil one coming and snatching away the word before it even gets a chance to implant. They're blind. And if this is the case, what hope does anyone have? If we're like double blind like this, what, how could we possibly ever see? And thankfully, there's hope. For God is greater. And only by his power, he can open blind eyes, he can lift veils, he can cause people to see. Thankfully, he uses that power, verse 6 of chapter 4. He encourages, though, and says, For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Christ. Basically saying, hey, you know the same God who said, let there be light? He can do that for you. He can shine the light of Christ in your hearts. He can remove the veil. He can open your eyes to the glory of God as it's seen in the face of Christ. Because now you can only get to God through Christ, the one mediator between God and man. To the world, the cross is not beautiful. It's grotesque. It's not glorious. It's foolish. You know, this Christ, maybe he's a teacher and a healer if he even existed, but he's not Lord and Savior. He's not my Lord and Savior. And the thing is, people will never give their lives to something they don't think is beautiful or glorious. But only when God lifts the veil, they they come to see the beauty of the cross and the glory of Christ. And then they can't help but believing it. This is the only way. All people, ourselves included, were lost and blind. Paul doesn't boast here. He he doesn't say, well, I know better because I was smarter. No, just the God shown in my heart. He's shown in our hearts. That's the only reason. Only the power of God can give sight. Already this should inform, for example, your prayers for your lost loved ones. At the end of the day, you, you just have to beseech the Lord of the harvest just to open their eyes. Please, Lord, open their eyes. It's, it's the only way that I can't open their eyes. I can't lift any veils, but God can. So you pray that. And even as believers, we actually continue to make that our prayer that the Spirit would illumine us, continue to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from his word. That's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. They were believers, but he prays for them in Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And he goes on, that they would come into an even greater depth and spiritual maturity. God must do his part. He must sovereignly act to open eyes. But we've also learned today, we, we have a part to play. We bear responsibilities. It's right there side by side. We have a responsibility. And what is our responsibility? You might say Hebrews 4, 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. No one is forcing you into unbelief. You are invited time and time again to seek this Lord, to turn to him, this Lord, and if you do, you you will be saved. When I look at our responsibility, balance in the same passage, go back to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, and verse 16, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15, he says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. How is the veil removed? Does he point to God has to take it away? No, he points to our responsibility, verse 16, but Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It's not an either or, it's a both and. You, you must turn to the Lord. And just you focus on this, knowing that as you repent and believe, your eyes will be opened. And the Lord turns none away who seek him, poor in spirit, humble, meek, broken over their sin. But just don't be content sitting in church another year, another decade, you're just going through all the motions, but nothing really makes sense. You know something is missing. You just need to make sure you have yielded your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then the way of the Lord will open up before you. You know how many testimonies have heard people who confess by their own admission that they were religious but not really born again for decades? And they always say the same thing. The Bible never made sense to them. They'd read the Bible. They'd study like, ah, I don't get this. It never made sense. They, they try and study on their own. It just like a veil is over their eyes. What do you know? It just never made sense. And they testify after they come to Christ, they're truly born again, and they know it, that the Bible just opens up. Just, uh, they read it, they understand it, it all starts to click and make sense. I've heard that a million times. I mean, now we know why. You need to make certain you've yielded to Christ as Lord. It is the starting point. You go to him in faith, the way of the Lord will open up to you. And as a final word now, if you do that, you will be blessed. Back to Matthew 13. I'll read as you go back. Just to finish this passage, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says this, Matthew 13, 16. He says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We get from Jesus a little extra beatitude, blessed are those who see and hear. And you see because you have opened your eyes. You hear because you have opened your ears. But at the same time, like Paul, we we don't boast because we know at the same time 
We only opened our eyes and ears because the Lord opened our eyes and ears. On the road to Emmaus, the risen Lord encountered these two disciples, and as Luke 24, 45 says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And good news, he still does that. He's still doing that. If that's you, you are truly blessed because 2 Timothy 3.15 says, these scriptures are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Countless godly men and women uh, in the past longed to see the day of Christ. They just desired to peek behind the veil into the glory of the new covenant, but they never did. And just as the, the dullest sunlight still vastly outshines the brightest moonlight so that the least believer in Christ is bathed in far greater glory than the greatest Old Testament saint. And the Lord here does not want us to take that for granted, our privileged position. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord. We all want to know the secret things. We keep asking, tell me more about the secret things, but it's not for you to know. That's why they're called the secret things. But We don't pay attention to the second half of that verse, which says, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. What has been revealed is for us. And in Christ, much has been revealed. By his spirit, much has been revealed. And in the parables, much has been revealed. So let us now and always take great care to enter into the blessing of things revealed, to know the word and to do it. Just as the Lord Jesus attested in Luke eleven twenty eight, another beatitude, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So let us open our eyes as God opens our eyes to see him, hear him, and follow him. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the, the glory of your word and of Christ and his cross, a glory which we, we never would have seen if you did not open our eyes. We can hear about it. We can give lip service to it, but we will stop short of presenting our whole lives as living sacrifices until we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's not something we can do for ourselves, though we must repent, believe, and, and look upon this Savior. We, we give you the glory knowing you work in us first. How, why, we, we do not know. Why us? We can't say, but we can praise you and thank you and share your gospel with the world, letting the light shine that others might know as you will. But we must thank you, praise you. We must seek you. Just getting a taste of these parables, we, I pray all of us here, come to you in genuine faith that we might learn so much and behold grand truths of your kingdom and appropriate them, digest them and live them out. Let it be fuel for our lives as kingdom citizens. So much to see here. Open the eyes of our heart. We do want to behold wonderful things from your law. So build up your people. Convict us. And I pray we leave just treasuring Christ even more, knowing truly that in him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May we make much of Christ in our lives, in our hearts, in our faith, and keep our eyes open. It's in Christ's name we pray.